Welcome to another episode of Quick Fix, where I, Drew Shulman, invite a guest on the show to pitch a quick fanfic episode of Supernatural based on a monster of the week of my guest's choosing. And today, my guest is the amazing William A. Wellman, a queer horror author and fiction podcaster, host and creator of an amazing show everyone here will have to go listen to after this, Hello from the Hallowoods. And hello, William. Hello, Drew. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, this is so cool. I I still remember when I discovered your show via, like, TikTok. And, like, part of me still thinks it may have been... Like, did you ever post TikToks about your podcast? I did at one point. I've been a bit lack in the marketing department lately. But uh, I would actually say TikTok might be one of the early ways that anyone ever heard about our little show. Because I'm pretty sure, like... like there was always that moment in my head where I'm like, I'm 90% sure it was like video of you on TikTok talking about your show. And that's how I found you. So then like meeting you and like, mind you, like our introduction was a mutual friend just being like, hey, come to the stranger's house to play board games. It is such a bizarre thing when people run into me in real life just through natural occurrence that have... <laughs> lurked in the same nerdy spaces on the internet enough to know me from the podcast or from social media or from tiktok and it's it's always hilarious to see yeah i was like not expected kind of thing but like you know what we live in a small world i'm happy to have more queer podcast content creators out here especially one as talented as you uh and i will admit i feel like most times i record these most people i I let them surprise me in the episode with what we're going to be facing. But you told me what we were going to be going up against. So I'm going to let you tell the audience because I'm very intrigued to get into this one. Yeah. So what would you have Sam and Dean Winchester facing? I would want to see in the sort of multi-franchise crossover that no one saw coming. Um, <laughs> I would like to see Sam and Dean fight the Babadook, uh, which is... <laughs> Uh, a 2014 Australian indie horror film uh, that just managed to be a complete like blindside surprise and make its way out and like really uh, reach kind of a beloved status. Uh, strangely enough, you know, not only among horror fans, although it does retain a 98% fresh on uh, Rotten Tomatoes, but uh, also it found a big audience within the queer community. So I thought... If there was one thing that all those Castiel <laughs> thirst posters on Tumblr would like, it would be to see, you know, their icons kind of meet in this crossover. So I can say from experience, I am one of those Destiel shippers. I, our, our entire podcast, our, our crew, our listeners, our fandoms, we are very much in on that and have very much accepted and preach the queer, uh, the queerness of the show, although most of the production has decided to not allow that to be the front-facing thing we believe it um the other thing too is up until what time is it like three o'clock up until about several hours ago i had never actually seen the movie i watched it last night for the first time <laughs> i i somehow just like i was very aware of the babadook and again tangentially of his queer icon status but i had never actually taken the time to sit and watch it first of all Great choice. Love the movie. Understand the rating. Uh, so outside of that, though, what is do you, have a, do you have a personal connection to the movie? Like, did it resonate with you in a way? Yes. I would say that 
Um, the Babadook was one of a few pieces of media that really changed the way that I thought about horror. Um, another one of those was Over the Garden Wall, which is a lovely little animated folk horror show for children. Uh, but uh, <laughs> The Babadook, um, I think, was the first horror movie that I watched. And I really thought they told a story with this, you know, on the surface, this is a story about a monster haunting a family, as so many horror stories are. But there's this really deep metaphor, this really deep, like, um, emotional significance that the film has. And I thought that the way that this film uses these surface elements and this monster and this, you know, situation to discuss something that is like a very raw emotional conversation uh, about grief, really. Um, that, that surprised me. That was something that I didn't know horror could do before. Um, and so I, I think this is something that I really carried with me. It might be the movie that got me interested in writing horror um, as a way really? to talk about, you know, uh, really queer issues instead of, you know, uh, grieving family, uh, single mother issues. But um, nonetheless, this was like the example that really got my attention of like, oh, you can use this story about these dark monsters and themes, but you can talk about something that is a lot more emotional and a lot deeper than the surface level. Um, so, yes, it left an impression on me for sure when I saw it. I, I love that connection. I mean, it's a connection we've made very frequently on our show is that uh, the the metaphor, the way monsters are othered is very similar to the queer experience. You don't conform to the cis, white, straight world. You are suddenly different, whether you are a vampire, a poorly designed werewolf, or <laughs> Sam and Dean, mostly Dean. So I guess, like, my next question usually is, like, which of the brothers would be kind of, like, the one facing this more and like i don't know if you had like leaned on one or the other oh yes oh yes <laughs> so um the babadook is an interesting one um because if you know listeners you have not seen the babadook um the way it shows up the way it presents itself to you is via a children's pop-up book um, that turns up unexpectedly somewhere in your house or, you know, in the backseat of your uh, 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 cool uh, roadster, as it might be. Um, <laughs> and after reading this book, uh, th this book is kind of a, a welcome letter from the Babadook, and it politely explains with some slightly graphic paper cut imagery what is coming next. Um, the Babadook is going to haunt you for a little bit. Uh, he'll knock several times, always. And then eventually uh, you might let him in. And if you do that, then you are uh, royally screwed. Um, the, the hauntings get worse after you let him in. There are generally uh, kind of metaphorical festerings that start to happen. You'll notice that reality becomes a little bit um, distorted. You lose your sleep. Uh, you, you start to kind of lose your sense of place and time. Um, there are, you know, in, in this film, uh, a lot of festering happens. There is a, a toothache yeah. that gradually gets worse throughout the film. 
there is a cockroach problem in the house that uh, materializes and worsens as the Babadook comes to rest there. Um, the Babadook kind of enhances rot. Um, and so those are kind of the middling consequences. Um, as uh, a child says in the film, it wants to scare you first and then you'll see it. And that's when the Babadook yeah, starts a, to really oh, a great line. present itself. Um, it appears when you do finally get to see it through opening closet doors and looming over your bed at night and scuttling around like a little wet bat on the ceiling. Um, <laughs> it appears to be a tall man in a black coat. It has very long black knife-like fingers or sort of lengthy gloves. Uh, and it has a top hat. Um, and it has a very pasty white face with kind of a, a smiling grimace. Uh, with black sort of rotted lips. Um, yeah, I feel like throughout the movie you get a better look of it in the book versus like uh, like I feel like anytime it appears physically in the film, it's like mostly in silhouette or very minimal detail, but the book gives it like really defined features, which I kind of love because you get like the best of both. This is because the book Babadook is much cooler looking than the real life Babadook. <laughs> Uh, and the filmmakers were smart enough to know this and keep him off screen for the most part. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, that's a problem I'd like to remedy when we get to the question about guest stars. But uh, oh. <laughs> the last question, um, or the kind of the last stage of the Babadook, is that it will. it is more a spirit than a physical monster, despite it appearing in visions sometimes. And so when it has driven you pretty much uh off the wall um you know you're in a depressed haze you can't think you don't know what day it is you're losing track of your relationships you're having these violent thoughts and tendencies and then uh it will at some point try to possess you um and once it possesses you then you will act i mean sam and dean have each been possessed like several times throughout the many seasons so it's probably nothing new for them but uh that said, uh, it generally makes you act a little bit uh, violent and out of hand and kind of maniacal. And you might try to kill the people closest to you and sort of take you all out together, at which point the Babadook will move on to a different host if it manages to, uh, to, to finish the job, so to speak. Um, so when it comes to the question of there, There is, though, and I think it's relevant to the question of which brother it would target more. The Babadook, mm -hmm. as famous, I think the, the, the metaphor for the Babadook is the reason it has become, one of the reasons it has become so beloved in addition to being a queer icon. And it's that the Babafor is, the, the, <laughs> the Babadook is both attracted to and a metaphor for grief. And it is in the film, The Babadook, uh, the loss of this husband of this family that this mother and this child have not really moved on from. They, they say that they do, but they have, they have not confronted this. They've not really dealt with it. It is still a lingering, festering wound that in, it affects their life every day. And that's where The Babadook comes in uh, and affects that wound like gangrene. Um, and Sam and Dean have wounds as well. Uh, they, 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 they lost their mother at the start of the show. And then if I'm not mistaken, they lose their dad 
fairly soon into the show's run. Yeah, like season three or four, I think he's uh, he's taken from them officially. Yeah, so after that, you've got Sam and Dean who have lost both their parents, who are feeling kind of uh, ungrounded from their, you know, monster hunting lives. Um, and neither of them are particularly good at processing these things. Um, they really like quests for vengeance. They don't really like settling with your grief and accepting it and you know, uh, coming to terms with it is a part of who you are as a person. And that is one of the only ways to solve for the Babadook. So um, I think this would be a big problem for them, but I think the brothers would tackle it differently. Now, keep in mind, I've only seen uh, maybe half of Supernatural, uh, and it's been a little while. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm about the same place that we're <laughs> nearing the end of season seven. So even in season seven, where we've lost Cass and we've lost Bobby it's like you're describing all of this and I'm keep going like oh yeah it could it could go after Sam or it could go after Dean and I'm like no you they're both perfectly good candidates for the Babadook unfortunately even here they're both perfectly good candidates and I think um both would be tempted by this in in different ways I think Sam would connect he's often i find the more emotional one of the two or the more emotionally open mm -hmm. of the brothers he's less likely to try and deal with his emotions with violence um and so i think he would be a little more in tune with the emotional aspects of the babadook i think the way that he interprets it would be a little bit more of a that using of past faces those people that he has lost coming back to haunt him um, you know, those sudden nightmares of their face illuminated in, you know, headlights in the dark. Um, I think this is the stuff that would hit him really hard. And I think he wouldn't necessarily be sold that the Babadook is evil. Or I think he would be maybe trying to understand it a little bit better. I think he would at least sense that there is something connect it is more than just a parasite it is connected to these issues that he hasn't moved on from in some way um i think dean would think he's very stupid for this um <laughs> and i think i'm getting i'm getting flashbacks like if you recall any of the episodes <laughs> if you don't it's fine but for our listeners who will i'm getting flashbacks to uh when they like lock sam up in the basement try to like wean him off demon blood in like season four or five mm -hmm. so he, he's like having these visions but even more recently in season seven, he's dealing with Lucifer living in his head. Yeah. Like as like a possession almost or like a, an illusion mm -hmm. system. So it's like he's dealing with a lot of this already. So it makes sense that a creature like this would like gravitate yeah. to him. Yeah. And I think as he is, you know, uh, enhancing his understanding of this thing as it continues to haunt him, probably while they're on a day trip to like try and do something else. But increasingly, like they picked up this book during a prior job wasn't really sure what it was and now this thing has kind of attached itself to them and that you know becomes the plot as they're trying to get to somewhere else but um i think as sam gets closer in his understanding dean gets angrier about it um you know i i imagine that he doesn't like it when there's not a monster that you can hit um you know you can't shoot the babadook um you can't like knuckle bust it you can't like wards to protect it so well so like 
I think he would be frustrated that there's not a lot he can do on the physical front and he refuses to do anything on the emotional front because, you know, it's all painful stuff that he doesn't like to, to delve into because he has to be the tough brother. Um, and so I think... It's amazing how well this links up with the show. It's like I've seen this episode already. <laughs> and so I think as, you know, he sees Sam slowly getting more hazy and more like uh, out of sorts and he gets mad about it. And I think, um, oddly enough, I think there would come a point where we expect the whole episode that Sam is going to go so far that he gets possessed. Like, Sam wants to understand it, but, you know, it's a stupid idea. He's got to get too close, and he's going to get possessed, and Dean's going to have to save him. But I think at some point during the, you know, the mid-episode, I think the onus switches a bit. Because suddenly, oh. Sam is the one that is beginning to understand that he's going to have to confront all these losses that he's faced. And I think Dean is the one who is not opening up and the one who is denying, you know, this, uh, this grief that he feels more. And so I think he would actually become the one who gets possessed by the Babadook by the, you know, the third act. Um, and I think also the worst person to get possessed by the Babadook because once it inhabits a physical shell, like it's very, very strong. It has sort mm -hmm. of rage tendencies. Uh, it, <laughs> um, it is not, I would say, unstoppable, uh, but it he is the more destructive of the two in a fight, I would think. And yeah. suddenly I think Sam is gonna be faced in this third act with the struggle of, do I, how do I A, stop my stronger brother? <laughs> Uh, but also like try to get us both through this um, and try to figure out a way to confront this thing, you know, so that we, we can move on from this. So I normally ask, like, I, I feel like the lesson learned is very clear. I think we see a lot of like emotional growth in Sam and a lack thereof in Dean, which is what we get from the episode as far as us as an audience. And I feel even like Sam as a character. So I guess, does that mean that Dean would eventually find a way to face it in some sense and that's how he beats the babadook you think or so the you know one of the one of the questions that was posed early on was how they how do they defeat it banish it or send it away um exactly how do you get rid of the babadook and i think the question that is classically echoed when it comes to dealing with the Babadook and probably the question that we would get in like a cool re-delivery for all those hardcore Babadook fans watching this episode would be mm -hmm. you can't get rid of the Babadook um and this is I think one of the the twists that really set the movie in maybe surprised expectations and perhaps one of the reasons that this particular specter and haunt has lived as long as it has in the public imagination um is that you can't get rid of loss you can't get rid of grief it isn't something that you can strip out of your life completely it isn't something that you completely heal from and then you move on and then it never matters anymore and it's all good and it's all in the past um and similarly we find uh with this creature it is not something that you can get rid of um you can't you know kill it with fire and then it doesn't trouble you anymore um and i think this would be a revelation that sam and dean probably would process a little bit differently 
they probably feel that loss in different areas. Um, mm -hmm. I feel like for Sam, it's probably a lot more abject pain about having had these people stripped away. I think Dean probably feels more a sense of personal responsibility. If someone died, it's because I wasn't strong enough to protect them or I wasn't big enough to save them. Um, and so I think for them in different ways, they're going to have to deal with the fact that these people are still gone and that's always going to hurt. And they're never going to be able to completely live free of that memory. But at the same time, that gradually you, you, you can't run from this. You can't uh, shove it away. You, you have to confront it. And I think sitting with that emotion would be very difficult for the both of them in different ways. Um, but I think by the end, the, the thing we find with the Babadook is that it may not ever leave completely, but once you accept kind of the, 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 the pain that you've been running from, once you acknowledge the, the, the loss that you've faced, um, then it is powerless. Uh, not completely powerless, but mostly powerless. Um, there's, a, there, there's a couple of beautiful lines that, that end that film, but um, one of them is that, you know, after beating this creature, then the, 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 the mom goes down to the basement and we find that it is still there. Um, and she tries to, to feed it. Uh, it is now no longer some like, you know, awful nightmare shadow creature. It is just kind of a ghost that lives in the cellar, but she goes to try and feed it a bowl of earthworms and, uh, as, as one does, <laughs> as one does to keep it satiated. And it almost gets her and she like kind of curls up backwards and screams for a second and then it rushes away and it takes its worms and it goes to gnaw on them in the corner. Uh, and she goes back upstairs. And then afterwards, um, her kids is like, how was it? And she's like, it was very quiet today. And I thought that was a beautiful note on, there is still sometimes those aftershocks, those pangs of suffering that you carry. Um, but that's what quiet looks like. Um, there, you know, the, I think one of the final lines of the film, again, this kid asking the mom after she's done this is, uh, the kid asks, am I ever going to see it? And, uh, she says one day when you're bigger, um, and you know, in, in some sense, this is a burden that she's going to carry a lot more than the kid is. Um, I think for Sam and Dean, probably one of the outcomes I would hope for is that after confronting their past, I imagine through a dramatic series of visions and cameos, um, <laughs> they would, they might not even ever talk about this to each other, but I think having gone through this experience and both having embraced the past and all the bad things that have, uh, you know, encountered them, um, sitting with that for a moment and all the people that they've lost along the way, I think that would allow them to, you know, even if the Babadook isn't ever truly gone, to take its teeth out, so to speak, and to, you know, roll forward into the future without uh, the same sense of guilt and the same sense of uh, desperate rage that drove them before. So that's kind of what I would hope for as the like emotional notes off this episode. 
I so recently in the series, I think it was in season six, we had an episode that kind of vaguely touched on some similar points. Uh, they meet um, an Egyptian god who's like judging them for the afterlife and basically like sentencing Dean to death for being guilty and feeling grief. And I feel like this is a better version of that almost. <laughs> like I much prefer this. And it's really funny. It, you know what? Like I loved the ending of the movie. I love the concept. Like as silly as it is on the surface that like they're kind of keeping the Babadook as like a pet in their basement. Mm -hmm. But like metaphorically, the fact that it's the idea that like you can never truly let go of pain. You can just learn to live with it. And some days are worse than others. Yeah. Um, and it didn't even occur to me until like having you repeat the line to me that the son has a moment of like, will I ever get to see it? And she's like, yes, because at the end of the day, like, I can deal with it for now. You're still young. It's not something you need to worry yourself with. But yeah. the loss of your father is something that will stick with you, unfortunately. And there will be days when you have to handle it. Yep. And hopefully when you're older and more capable. So for Sam and Dean to be kind of given that same idea where, like, they themselves don't need to admit to each other what they've gone through. But they get to have their own personal introspective journeys in grief and dealing with it. And the thought that, like... You know what? It's always a weird thing when the show does that, where they don't kill the monster. They kind of <laughs> let it go. And maybe sometimes it's just us, the audience, mm -hmm. that get to see it escape. But having a moment where the two of them acknowledge, like, we can't stop this thing. It is, like, a force versus, like, an entity. Yeah. And all we can do is we can survive it and hope others learn the same lesson. I kind of love that in a way for the show, as, like, letting them kind of, like, realize that they were, that the creature wasn't the bad guy for once. A hundred percent. And likewise, you know, it, it might occur to them in posts that like the only way to stop, we, we see in kind of a, a brief foreshadowing that like, you know, this book shows up, you can't get rid of the book. And if you make any attempts to counter the Babadook, the pages will change to ref like reflect what new stuff the Babadook's going to do <laughs> as a result. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you make a big and probably like Dean would find, you know, in the third act, like the pages changing to talk about his possession instead of Sam's or something like that. Um, oh, for sure. But, you know, by the by the end, uh, we know one thing from like a, a brief glimpse into a different life, which is that. If the Babadook manages to do what it's supposed to do and completely take out this family and, like, feed on their grief until there's nothing left and then move on, then it will continue to travel. But if it gets stuck in a basement somewhere, powerless and, you know, uh, just a lingering remnant of itself, the book's not traveling anymore. The Babadook is stopped. So the only way to, you know, avoid collateral to stop the Babadook from getting more people is to carry it with you forever. Um, and so I would love to see just in random seasons to come, like them, you know, pop the trunk or something. And that book is there along with all the other gear that they keep. And it just, they can't get it out of the car, but it always travels. But like never acknowledge it almost like a where's Waldo for the audience of just yeah. like once yeah. in a blue moon, it's in the back of a shot or it's like, you know, in his, like it's tucked under his arm with his laptop. You know, we, we, 100%. Never it never, no, a hundred percent. Oh. So I guess the weird thing here, so like I've done this too, where like our our creature of the week has been a little more abstract, but like, do you have a guest actor or someone you want to see like portray the Babadook in some sense? In this? Yes. Um, so, you know, the curious thing is uh, guest actor is a bit hard when it is kind of an abstract thing. I would want to pull in two people. 
Um, and you okay. and you mentioned one of these before the call, but one thing that did it doesn't bother me anymore, but it did when I first watched the Babadook. It's that the Babadook has this iconic look. Its head is almost as wide as its shoulders. It has this ear-to-ear mm-hmm. pasty grin. It has these little beady, sketched-in black eyes. Um, and so, like, I was surprised to find that after all the, these posts online about, oh, this is the queer icon and it's the book illustration and flipping through the pages of the book, you know, this is how he looks. And then when you actually see it in live action several times throughout the film, it's just kind of a guy with makeup standing in a corner and he doesn't have that same face at all. And you realize like, oh, the storybook illustration looks a little bit different than the actual thing. And that's okay. That's okay. But yeah. if if I were to get, you know, uh, powers of the cosmos, I think you could do something in real life via the power of practical effects and, you know, wonderful makeup art that looks the same as it does in the book. And to that, I look to um, the creatures that they did for scary stories to tell in the dark. Um, Oh my God, yes. (laughs) Which had phenomenal, almost human, but not quite kind of uncanny, uh, actual practical like makeup and suits for a lot of their, Mm -hmm. their monsters. Um, and that kind of like look would be something that I would love to pull in. So, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it was Guillermo del Toro who was responsible for those. I I might. I believe. Yeah, we did. We did. <laughs> I believe it is. I have to look it up. But like, I would. I would have to look it up. Then, like, and if not, then certainly his work in Hellboy demonstrates the same thing. So. Oh, and Pan's Labyrinth too. Oh, yeah. I think would definitely cross that list yeah. as well. So oh, I would. I would. I would want to pull in Guillermo del Toro as the creature designer for the Babadook. Um, and just because they go hand in hand most of the time, uh, I would want to pull in Doug Jones to play the Babadook. Um, <laughs> Doug Jones has played a more lanky, gangly creatures in horror stuff than you could ever shake a stick at. Um, he's played a shocking number of fishmen, and so I, I would yeah, really, <laughs> I would love to to pull in Doug Jones. He's played no less than three different fishmen so i would love to pull i would love to pull doug jones in uh to portray the oh i love that um just because even though he would be somewhat buried beneath you know a really cool costume Mm -hmm. a he has the long fingers that could do the babadook's creepy knife fingers justice and b he has really flanged lips so i think he could do that babadook ear to ear uh toothy grin just really well oh Really funny, like, when you mentioned, like, that it's someone we, like, kind of brought up earlier, I was like, oh, I have another actor in mind that I, I don't think would be nearly as good as Doug Jones and Guillermo <laughs> del Toro. But, like, if we needed just, like, so Supernatural has this really, like, I find shitty habit of just the monster is just a human with, like, very minimal makeup or effects. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we didn't, if they would not allow us the budget we'd want for something as good as that, but somehow the budget for the actor of our choice... I'm still feeling like Tim Curry would do this really well. Oh, they're kind of the Star Trek <laughs> of cryptids in that regard. Um, oh my God, they are, yes. <laughs> but, uh, oh man, if if we could pull back Tim Curry and have him in oh. for a part, he, he would be delightful. Uh, as a man... Like, I'm just remembering him in, um, in Over the Garden Wall also. He just mm. does creepy so well. Um, weirdly, he's always kind of stuck with me as the... Um, 
the creepy toxic creature from fern gully (laughs) equal parts horrifying equal parts sexy and as a child that was very confusing and weirdly a gay awakening i didn't realize i had to way too late toxic love yeah oh my god that song gets me still (laughs) (laughs) yes oh Uh, man that is is, that is overall an amazing concept for an episode and again it kills me how well these segments go with guests that like put together episodes better Mm. than the show ever could (laughs) tim curry also shares a reputation of having been a horror icon who was kind of adopted forcibly into the like queer community (laughs) Um, i mean he did sort of bring it on himself with uh, rocky horror picture show you know but um you know i feel like he would resonate with with that part for sure even um, in the Muppets, I feel like he's fully accepted that title. <laughs> when you are being bombarded by, you know, 500 pink feathers uh, singing about cabin fever, <laughs> I think you've pretty much accepted your place. Yeah. Um, yep. And that is the funny thing about the Babadook that, you know, it's often uh, kind of put up there as like, oh, you know, a horror queer icon. And the thing is, this was a joke largely that began on the internet. To my knowledge, as far as I've been able to research, it began with Netflix accidentally putting it in the LGBTQ plus section of their Really? Their Is that where this all started? Um, and so someone made a post that was like, glad to see Netflix recognizes proud gay icon, the Babadook. <laughs> um, and from there, you know, it's on pride flags. Uh, it's got merch. Oh There's God. art of it, like holding a brick in its knife-like fingers at Stonewall. Um, and, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, it, it was kind of adopted from there. Um, but I think the other bit of it, maybe the reason that it has also stuck with the queer community, in addition to, you know, that particular sort of running gag, is that um, at the end of the day, the Babadook is a story about suppression, and that if you bury these feelings that you have. Um, the damage and the internal kind of hemorrhaging that results from that. Um, in the story, you know, that feeling is is grief and confronting loss. And that's what this family suppresses and buries and refuses to acknowledge. And uh, that's why the Babadook has this place to fester. But for many queer people, you know, that is feelings of queerness. That is not being sure whether you want to come out. That is not being sure whether you can confront these feelings or these parts of yourself. Um, or whether you're going to have to stay in a closet, which is the Babadook's favorite place of residence. Um, so I think, you know... I didn't even, I didn't even make that clear. <laughs> he comes out all throughout the movie. Um, so I think there's a couple things to, to kind of... Uh, that maybe re- extraneous reasons why people have latched on to this particular gothic weirdo so much more than, you know, uh, the average... I mean, I fully agree, and I love that reading of it. And I, I, I didn't even realize I was going to ask if you knew more about the queer icon class it received, and knowing that it started as like basically a meme, <laughs> but like has, and again, kind of like supernatural. Like I still say, like it, there is so much queer reading to be done in this show. I've also heard people bring up other readings of uh, autism, asexuality. Um, gender dysphoria like there's a lot to read into and i like with little to no confidence except for my own like understanding of 2005 media 
don't think there was a room full of writers who were respectful and thoughtful enough to put those <laughs> in intentionally. But again, that is not their issue or their fault. I mean, yeah, they're, but you know what I mean? But at the end of the day, it's here is a story. You can then read into it and find your meaning. And the fact that the Babadook was able to do this and make this amazing, like, like everything you described today, William, fits so well with the narrative the show has already put forth, but in better detail because you're a much better storyteller than most people on that show. Uh, that I genuinely am so impressed with how well this worked. And I know you, I won't spoil it, but you had another pitch for one of these. And I will likely reach out to you uh, for our next season break to do that one. Cause I really want to hear your take on that one. <laughs> but um, this has been amazing. And for now I would like my listeners who hopefully have fallen in love with you the way I have over our few months of knowing each other and listening to this content, where can my followers find you? Yes. Well, good followers. If you are listening to this, you're probably listening to podcasts. And if you're listening to podcasts, then somewhere on your listener, there is a show called Hello from the Hallowoods, uh, which is the show that I write, create, voice. Uh, it is a, a weekly thing uh, with episodes rolling out uh, frequently. Uh, we just ended season three. We're coming back in February with more. Um, so feel free to tune in there. Otherwise, you can find me at hellofromthehallowoods.com or at uh, williamwellmanwrites.com, I believe. Um, or, yeah, uh, or anywhere on social media at, at the Hallowoods. We're, we're all the places on the internet that you would expect. I'll be putting links to all of this in our show notes, and I will invite everyone to uh, go and give the show a listen. Honestly, it is so much fun. If you like uh, horror fiction podcasts, you love a good story, you love amazing characters and just being creeped out in the right way, this is so the show for you. Uh, William, thank you so much for lending me this afternoon. This was so much fun. Um, this is my favorite part. Like, I love my podcast, but doing these segments, getting to hear people's horror stories and share this is so much fun. So, again, thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure, Drew. Thank you so much for having me on and uh, carry on. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward Minisode. We hope you enjoyed and please let us know what you thought on Twitter, Instagram, or any social of your choice using at Carrying Wayward. And until next time, carry on our wayward friends.